Welcome to the RE Human Layer Security Podcast, the show that flips the script on cybersecurity. I'm Tim Sadler, the CEO and co-founder of Tessian, and in each episode, I'll be interviewing IT and business leaders about why we need to protect people, not just machines and data, to stop breaches and empower businesses to achieve their missions. Hi, everyone. As you can tell by my voice, I'm not Tim Sadler. Tim's off this week, so I'll be stepping into Phil's shoes. My name is John Phillips, and I'm a technical writer at Tessian. I'm delighted to host today's interview with Ted Harrington, author of best-selling book, Hackable. Ted's an ethical hacker, an entrepreneur, and a security consultant. Ted is also the executive partner at Independent Security Evaluators, a company made up of ethical hackers. He and his team have helped hundreds of companies, including the likes of Google, Disney, Amazon, Netflix, and Qualcomm, discover and fix thousands of security vulnerabilities. I'm excited to speak with him today. Ted, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Ted, we've got a couple of questions. Let's start off with a broad question of who hackers are and what are they after? Well, that yeah, that's a great place to start because there's really a, a wide range of common misconceptions about what even the term hacker means. And so maybe we start there because... Hacker is often portrayed to be a negative, right? Meaning some sort of malicious entity who's doing, you know, something nefarious or whatever. And that, you know, those are hackers for sure. But the truth is that the term hacker is neither good nor bad. Uh, a hacker is simply a problem solver. They are someone who's creative. They look at the way that a system works and they say, can I make that system behave differently than it was supposed to? So that's really what a hacker is. That's that's neither good nor bad. The fork in the road comes to motivation. So the ones that the media is always referring to when they say hackers, 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 they're certainly talking to ones talking about ones who have more of a malicious bent to them. But the other fork in the road are people who come from my corner of the world, which are ethical hackers. And both types of hackers, they both want to look at a system, understand what the weaknesses are, how someone might defeat that system. But ethical hackers do that because we want to fix it. We want to improve the system. So it's really a much more positive spin on it. But it's the same uh, processes, the same techniques, the same use of tools, et cetera. And that's really why companies and uh, all types of organizations are looking to hire ethical hackers because we're able to bring that sort of uh, that positive mindset for how we can actually improve a system by doing the same things that an attacker would do. So, Ted, your your take: what what would be the sort of three qualities that makes a that, that enables a person to have that hacking mindset? They would be number one. They certainly need to be creative, right? They're a problem solver. They are the kind of person who can understand rules but not necessarily feel the compelling need to follow them. And so the combination of those three things, right? The, they're creative, they're problem solvers, and they look at the way that systems work in order to understand how they work, but not necessarily need to follow them. Those are the things that all hackers sort of share in their mindsets. And then the difference, of course, based on what different types of hackers you're talking about are the different motivations. And even within the malicious actors, there are a wide variety of different motivations that, you know, sort of correlate to the different types of attackers they might be. But those, those would be the three that I would say. And let's see, this is touch on those malicious uh, threat actors. You know, how might an attacker exploit an organization's systems? What are sort of the, the, the most common methods of 
exploitation that you're seeing uh, in your in your day-to-day work the most simple way to think about that is one would be the people and then the second would be the tech itself and there's significant debate in the security community about which is the more serious problem where should we focus our efforts and i think that that's probably not a very productive way to talk about it because we really need to think about both sides. We need to think about how do people get attacked and how do systems get attacked and systems getting attacked has a component to it also that is how do, you know, what's the human element to how that system was built or how it's accessed. And so when you think about the human element, how do people get attacked? That's why you see a lot of organizations doing things like having training, having awareness where they'll do things like, their either the security team or their IT team will send out uh, phishing campaigns to see if their people actually fall for stuff like that. And then if they do sort of train them in that way, because humans make mistakes, right? Fundamentally, people do dumb things. <laughs> we all do it. We've all done dumb things before. And so that's the people side. And then the system side, there's this, we can't really answer that in a very simple, short soundbite. But when we think about what are the most common ways that systems get attacked, really what attackers are doing is they're trying to find ways that they can defeat the authorization or the access controls, meaning they're trying to defeat the way that a system determines who's allowed to do what. And that's an important detail to note because when you hear claims, you've probably heard people say or companies claim things like, oh, we use bank level security or military grade encryption. That's a problematic claim because those claims, they're essentially saying, well, we use the same level of encryption as a bank uses or as the government uses. And if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. But the reason, and that is a good thing. We we should be using the best possible uh, encryption that a system can use, but it, it belies a problem in the thinking, which is that attackers must be breaking encryption. And that's not necessarily what they're trying to do. They're not necessarily trying to break the lock. They're trying to find where are the keys to the lock. That makes sense. So it, going down that line of thought, Ted, wh- how, you know, what's your advice for organizations to secure themselves? What are the sort of, what it's really about a process of, of looking at it from a strategic point of view rather than a technology problem or, or a, a people problem? How, you know, how do you advise companies to stay safe? Yeah, so the way that I think about it in its, in its simplest sense, in each one of these components has many sub pieces to it. But the first thing we have to do is we have to make sure that the way we think is correctly attuned to the way that we need to think in order to actually defend our system. So first is how we think. The second is how do we actually break our systems? How do we, what are the correct steps to go through in order to uh, find those vulnerabilities that the attackers are going to try to find? And then the third is how do we win? Right? How do we actually think about security in the proper context of the business? How do we invest in it? How do we convert that investment into benefit for the business? Uh, so on and so forth. So those are sort of the three main areas. We can dig into each if you like, but essentially it's, you know, how do we think? Are we, are we thinking like an attacker? Are we trying to get better every day? Are we, are we doing those things that are going to make the system better? And then it's how do we break the system? Uh, that's the second component. Are we actually doing the things that the attackers are going to do? Are we doing all of the correct types of things? Uh, or are we pulling up short? Are we trying to um, skate by 
whether intentional or not, with uh, approaches that really don't get to the heart of the matter. And then the, the final stage is uh, how are we how are we thinking about um, doing this in the right way? Are we spending the right money on the right things? Are we talking about it in terms of benefits of the business, uh, so on and so forth? So those are the three uh, primary areas. And in terms of that investment component, prioritizing security, uh, what are some of the challenges that you see when consulting with clients? Often the approach is we adopt a reasonable standard of security. We meet the compliance benchmarks for a given industry vertical. Uh, but how do you make that case that you know you need to make a, a an additional investment in your security stack? Yeah, this is this is the heart of the matter for so many organizations, right? How do you know if you're spending enough and if you're spending on the right things? And those are really difficult questions to answer. Um, security investments are they're really difficult to see the payoff because let's say you didn't get hacked. Is that because you're spending appropriately? You're spending in the correct ways? Or is that because you're just lucky and just haven't gotten hacked yet? And it's really hard to measure that. You can't really measure a negative. You can't measure the absence of something. And that is where a lot of companies really struggle to say, well, how do I know what the appropriate amount of money is to spend? And the even the way that you frame the question is the way that a lot of people think about it, but I think is problematic in itself too, thinking, well, we meet some sort of reasonable benchmark. We meet some sort of, we comply with something. Um, but those, any compliance framework inherently has, has gaps in it. It's, you know, they're built to be able to uh, be relevant to the widest range of organizations, but every organization is unique. And so by definition, even a system that's compliant with a framework is going to have these gaps between what the, the framework requires and what is actually being built by that organization. And so I think the way that people can think about their security investment are a few. One, I think people should think about security investment in terms of how many vulnerabilities have you discovered and eradicated? And what I mean by that is that here's a fundamental truth. Vulnerabilities exist. That's, that's not the debate. The question is, who finds them first? Does the attacker find them and exploit them? Or does the potential victim find them and remediate them? And that's really the question that matters. So when we think about how much money, how much time, how much effort is being invested in security, we should be thinking about how many vulnerabilities have we discovered and eradicated. And one of the things I did when I was in the process of uh, writing the book was I was working with our teams to analyze our data based on many, many years of performing security assessments for companies. And we could draw a very clear correlation between level of effort invested and then the number of vulnerabilities that are discovered. And that sounds pretty straightforward, right? It's like the more you, more effort you put into something, the more results you're going to get. That sounds pretty intuitive and straightforward when you say it like that. But you'd be surprised how many people think about security in the opposite way. They think about it as a cost center. They think about it as a, a tax on the business. And like any tax, like any cost center, you want to try to be efficient with those costs, with those taxes. You want to reduce them. But I actually think that the most progressive organizations are thinking about their investment differently. They're thinking about it, not just how do we avoid a bad thing, right? Which is how do we make sure we don't get hacked? Yes, we should definitely do that. But we should also think about how do we obtain a good thing? So it's not just how do we avoid a bad thing, but it's how do we get a good thing? And that good thing is the ability to earn trust 
with outside parties. So let's say you're a company building software and you want to sell that software uh, subscriptions or whatever to some large enterprise. Well, that large enterprise cares about the security of the products that they use. And so they're going to go through a process of vetting the security of this system before they allow anything that they care about to be accessed by that system. Well, who's going to win between two systems that deliver ostensibly similar outcomes to that enterprise? The one who's going to win, assuming they have you know, similar benefits and maybe they're, you know, meet the other criteria the company's looking for, the company that's going to win or is going to win faster is the one who recognizes how important security is to that buyer and can satisfy it more quickly and more easy. It's just drilling down on those on those on that vulnerability pillar. Um, I I really like your approach of of really you know the importance of testing your defenses and testing your investment by discovering those vulnerabilities. What are some of the com- common vulnerabilities that you see when consulting with your customers, and are you surprised by some of your findings? There's always is a combination of the two for sure. There's uh, I think in every project that we work on, there's always something super cool and exciting. Right. There's always something where it's like, wow, that's that's a really elegant way that we were able to put together a few issues and create some sort of catastrophic outcome. Um, but then also on every project, there's more of the same, right? The for anyone who's building a web application that's listening to this, they might be familiar with something called the OWASP top 10. And the OWASP top 10 essentially is a list of the most common vulnerabilities that afflict web applications. And these are things like injection attacks, broken authorization, et cetera, et cetera. And we find these issues on literally every project that we work on. We find you know one or more of, of these types of problems. And the reason that this a list like that matters is because, well, if most people caused that problem or, or made that error that's now exploitable, then you probably did too. And the attackers know that. And the attackers are... They're efficient with their time, just like me, just like you, just like anyone listening. They want to use their time in the most efficient, most effective, and and really just best way. And so attackers will always start to investigate those sort of common issues first. But the the elegant ones, those get really, really exciting. Like, for example, there was a project we worked on recently that had these two issues, which they were both bad. But if you consider them isolation, it wasn't necessarily catastrophic. One issue was what's called information leakage. And essentially it meant in this system, any user could obtain the user identifier of any other user. Now, that's not that big of a deal. Uh, It's not even exploitable. You don't want it to happen, but it's not that big of a deal. The second issue was a much more significant problem and was exploitable. Uh, It's where the authorization model was broken. And what that means, authorization is your, uh, essentially when a system verifies your permission to do something, are you allowed to do something? And broken means that it doesn't work correctly. And so in this case, broken authorization meant the way that you change your credential, you change your password, uh, it, like any system, required you to supply information. You know, we've we've all changed passwords before, right? And it says, hey, give us your current Mm -hmm. password so that we can verify you know it so that we can allow you to change to the new password. So this system required you to supply information, but it didn't require you to supply the password. It required you to supply the user identifier. Now, in theory, you only know your own user identifier. So while that's a problem, it's somewhat limited. But when you combine it with that information leakage issue, it meant that any user could identify any other user and then use that credential in order to change the password. And when they change the password, they could now 
take over literally every single account in the entire system. And it's things like that that are what really destroy systems because there's really no tool that helps you do that. You can't like run a scanner that satisfies that problem. You can't, there's no compliance framework that says, hey, let me, you have to validate that these combination of issues that are unique to your system don't exist. And those are the types of, of issues that are, while not as common, they're the types of things that uh, at some, in some cases are very trivial and have catastrophic impact, such as the story that I just described. Interesting. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, Ted, are you seeing, uh, I know you said that these sort of types of vulnerabilities are limited, but are you seeing a growing sophistication of some of the the vulnerabilities and exploits that that you're finding in, in systems where you analyze? Definitely, yes. There's there's this people always talk about how security is an arms race. And and I, I agree with that. And it's an arms race in the sense that the attackers are forever evolving. They're inventing new techniques. They're uh, developing new tools. Uh, one of the things that's really fascinating to see across sort of the attacker landscape is the way that the access to these really sophisticated attacking tools are being made available to anyone, right? To, to people who don't have as much skill. And so, for example, you know, some sophisticated attack technique might become invented and then someone finds a way to make it so that uh, it can be executed by running a script. And so now someone who doesn't necessarily have those same skills can buy the script for however many dollars on, you know, some sort of black market, and then they can execute that attack as well. And so these forces, which are very typical, traditional market forces, are at play in the uh, attacker world as well. And so the same reasons that in a traditional marketplace, like a, you know, a more uh, capitalist marketplace, all those forces are the same, drive to compete, drive to innovate, drive to have a first mover advantage, drive to uh, supply things to the masses. These, these forces all exist. And so what that means is that the attackers are themselves constantly evolving. And that what that means is that on the defender side, we have to constantly adapt. And so the, the short answer to your question is, yes, things are, are constantly evolving. New attack techniques, new tools are coming out all the time. And then known tools are becoming more readily available to people who otherwise couldn't afford them or didn't have the skills to run them. Ted, I'd like to touch on two, two, two areas that you just answered on. Uh, one would be, give me some insight into um, this commercialization of cybercrime that you referenced. You know, the, the commercialization of these uh, exploit kits that anyone can purchase on the dark web. Give me some insight on what you see, how you see this evolving, this particular threat evolving over the next uh, one to three years. And then a second part of that is, how, how do you and your team, you know, stay uh, abreast with these changes and these challenges? How do you, how do you guys, you know, keep your skills uh, as sharp, if not sharper than the uh, attackers to, to find these vulnerabilities? Yeah. So for the, for the first part, uh, the market forces, there's, I can illustrate it with a detail that I think is just, it's just so fascinating to me. If you think about ransomware right now, right? There's all these ransomware gangs. They're, they take down companies. Uh, they, they'll encrypt their systems or whatever. And they'll say, you know, give us this amount of money. And, and, and if you don't, we won't decrypt your, uh, your file system. Uh, but if you do, we will. And it opens the question, right? Which is, well, how do, this is a criminal. 
how do I know they're actually going to do this? How do I know that if I give them whatever amount of money they're asking for, that they will in fact provide access to my systems again? That's a pretty good question to ask. So what has happened now on the uh, amongst the sort of sophisticated marketplace that is ransomware gangs, there's now the equivalent of like credit ratings in terms of there are actually resources you can look at that will rate different ransomware gangs and how credible and reliable they are in do they actually follow through? Like if they get paid, will they actually allow you access or will they re-victimize you? You know, all those kinds of things. And I think that's so fascinating. You think there's like the equivalent of like Yelp ratings for attackers. And that is just a, a, a really fascinating illustration of the way that these market forces are are at play. And so you were talking about, you know, exploit kits that you can buy, you can download. Yeah. It's like, it's like anything you can buy now, you, you know, it's not the same as Amazon, but it's a similar idea. You go to a marketplace, you search for what you're looking for, you pay an amount of money, and then you have access to that thing. Uh, someone else built it, all the expertise and manufacturing process that went into it, you're essentially paying for, uh, but then you can go use it. Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't have to know how to build a bicycle, but I can just buy a bike from Amazon and I get all the benefits of riding a bike. And so it's a similar, similar idea. So that's the first question you asked. So the second question, which was about how do we, uh, and I'm going to answer the we more, more broadly because there's how do we do it at my company, but there's, I think we could say the same about, um, the, the pioneers or the people that are more progressive across ethical hacking in general. What we're all doing is we're all pushing, to continually grow, to learn. Uh, we're studying, you know, the work of others, the research that others are publishing. We're certainly paying attention when some new zero-day vulnerability is published. And then we're thinking about, okay, well, how does that apply to the companies that hire us or the companies that we're performing research on? And it's really that mindset, right? As how do we get better every day? And I often correlate this to, I think, I think a metaphor that we can think of is this is sort of like fitness, right? Um, for anyone who cares about being fit, you recognize that uh, just wanting to be fit isn't enough, right? You actually have to like constantly every day put in the work, think about your nutrition, think about your hydration, think about the goal that you're seeking. Is it to add muscle? Is it to become faster? Is it become leaner? Is it to have a stronger heart? You know, you think about your goals and then you do the activities that push you in the direction of that goal. And so that's really what ev everyone that I see who's, you know, crushing it in the ethical hacking community, that's the way they all think about their own development of skills is how can I be better at this? How can I learn from others? How can I teach others? And uh, I think community is really the right word when we're talking about the community of ethical hackers, but that's how it's, it's constantly pushing ourselves to be better because things are changing even as we don't, we know what the change is yet but we know that it's one is coming and so we just have to keep pushing i love that yeah so so ted if you had to boil it down to a few you know fundamentals that you you know typically advise your clients i know you've mentioned the element of trust you've also focused on and, and touched on the importance of, of you know securing those basics um what would be like if you had to boil it down to you know three to five points for a for a client to, to focus on on the fundamentals yeah, so I think the first thing you want to do is make sure you hire the right partner. Um, so if you're building something and you want to have some help, make sure that you're you're getting a group who can actually solve the problem. 
And that can be difficult to do because it's sort of the chicken and the egg thing, right? If you don't yet have elite security talent on your team, how can you vet for elite security talent? Uh, so there are some things you can look for, things like do they publish research? Uh, what kind of reference customers do they have? What's their methodology? How do they approach their projects? Those kinds of things. So make sure you get the right partner who, who actually has the skills and capabilities. You, you want someone who can do things in a more manual basis, not just run a scanner. It's not just about tools. Once you have the right partner, then you want to make sure that you're actually doing the level of effort that's required in order to find security vulnerabilities. So this is actually very difficult for companies who are hiring a partner to help them do this. It's difficult for them to know, like, are we doing it right? I, I actually don't know. And the answer to that is maybe more involved than we have time for here together today. But the simple way to think about it is that most approaches to security are just going to run some sort of tool and then maybe give you some sort of manual removal of the false positives and things like that. But really what matters is that more manual approach, like that story I told before of you know combining these two ideas, that's called exploit chaining. When you combine the that information leakage issue with the broken authorization issue, um, that was, you know, you need to be doing those things more manually. Uh, so that's, that's the next one. And then finally, I would say, make sure that you actually fix your vulnerabilities. And that seems pretty straightforward, right? Like why, what would be the point? Otherwise, like why invest the time, effort, money, resources, person power? Why invest that if you're not going to fix them? But you'd be surprised how many companies do that, right? They're, they look at it and they say, oh, this is a lot of work. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us money. It's going to cost us direction of person power. You know, my devs could be doing something else, but you got to do it. And there's actually a pretty straightforward way to do it. You can triage it based on severity. But those are the keys to actually building better, more secure systems. Ted, thank you. Thank you for your time today. That was really great. And we always finish up our interviews with quick questions just to get to know the humans on our, our podcast better. So favorite city in the world for you? Ooh, favorite city in the world. I mean, I don't know. It's probably got to be San Diego. It's just heaven on earth. I would agree with that. I love San Diego. Uh, second, your schedule is cleared. What do you do for your day? I would go for a run. I would think about how I can improve one area of my life. And I would book my next trip. Great. And uh, best book you've ever read? That's my own. Uh, shameless plug. <laughs> uh, <laughs> best book I've ever read. Uh, I would probably, it's hard to pick one, but one that comes immediately to mind would be Start With Why by Simon Sinek, because it helps you really reshape what it is that you're doing uh, as a person, as an organization, and how to communicate that purpose and that mission to others so they can align to your mission. Ted, thank you very much for speaking with us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone you know wants to reach out to me, ask questions to further expand on what it is that we talked about, you want to follow me on social media, you want to get help with your own security testing program, just you can just find me at tedharrington.com. All that information is there. And that just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with more Human Layer Security Insights in our next episode. But if you can't wait that long, you can visit our blog at tessian.com forward slash blog, where you'll find lots of amazing content, advice, and tips. And if you enjoyed our show, please rate and review it on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you.